This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. You can probably tell by my voice I'm not. Uh, I've got a heavy cold, so I'm, I'm trying to keep away from you as much as possible. In the era of, of COVID, I think you know we we would have stayed at home. So don't stand too close to me, and I, I might make a sh- short exit out after the service, so I don't share my heavy cold with you. But um, I hope that you can get by listening to me with a bit of a Barry White voice. Um, so. Um, uh, I'm just going to just share a few thoughts um, that I prepared on this subject of the, what the gospel means to me. Uh, we've had five people share what the gospel means to them over the summer, and uh, and this one uh, is 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 a personal thing. It's about what the gospel literally means to me, and uh, what aspect of the gospel that really hits my heart and has always made such a difference to me in my life. Um, but before I start talking about that, I want to just introduce uh, that subject by way of uh, sharing something I read with you in the Times newspaper recently. Um, and that was um, a survey commissioned by the Times um, of Anglican clergy. Um, and that includes rectors, vict- uh, victors, vicars, curates, chaplains and retired priests who still serve. And um, they, they surveyed, uh, they got responses from 1,200 serving priests. Uh, and, and what they uncovered was that two-thirds of those priests uh, believe that the UK is no longer a Christian country. And the survey uncovered high levels of stress amongst priests, many of whom feel overstretched and fearful that the church's efforts to arrest the decline in attendance will fail and ultimately lead to its extinction. And, and you know, knowing lots of Anglican vicars like I do, I can, I, can, I can testify that's probably true. That probably is a very fair reflection of Anglican clergy are feeling about when they look at their churches. Um, but what I found more interesting was Juliet Samuel, the journalist who wrote in the opinion section of the paper. She said this, she said, the decline of Christianity in Britain should be mourned. Although she didn't describe herself as a Christian, she felt saddened by the secularization of Bristol, Bristol, Bristol or maybe Bristol and Britain, um, saying that it seemed to her that Britain could do with a little bit more Christianity rather than less and that as it withers away, it leaves a gap. Let me, let me quote what she said to you, or some of what she said to you. She says, there are almost no places left like church where a community gathers regularly on the basis of its geographical proximity. She's obviously referring there to the parish system. Um, this inevitably leads to a diminishing stock of neighborly contacts and relationships. There's no appointed time where a neighborhood gathers to rest and reflect. There's no shared stock of wisdom to turn to during physical or moral trials. Only the Google search box waiting for your sorrowful question with its drop-down menu of suggested phrases. Human behaviour is not formed by rationale, but by habit. And most religions have embedded within them habits that people are struggling to relearn from their therapists or their health apps. And I just thought that was quite an insightful uh, comment and opinion. She finishes it by saying this, secularization in short has cost us something important, something we should be able to acknowledge without being accused of pining after medieval theocracy. That captures captures a sense very well there of what many people might feel about the importance of church and the role of Christianity in our nation. Now, that sad story of decline of Christianity in Britain reminds me of the situation in Judea at the time of Jesus. And if you'll indulge me, let me just explain what I mean. Um, I'm just going to refer to the Gospel of Mark, which is actually the shortest account of Jesus' life, and it's also considered by scholars to be the most original. 
uh, than one from which Matthew um, draws and, and certainly is instructive in terms of our understanding of, of who Jesus was and what happened at the time of his life. Now, what we need to recognise, though, is that scholars think that Mark didn't write uh, at the time. He wasn't scribbling down notes as he watched Jesus do what he did. He actually wrote it about AD 70. So that's about 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and it's around about six years after the death of Paul. So Mark's writing this uh, in AD 70, but those references that I've just made actually are not the most important. Probably the most important reference is actually what happened in AD 70 was the destruction of the Jewish temple and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman occupiers. Now, it's really easy for us to just gloss over history like that and many of us aren't really into history I have to say I'm a bit of a history geek and anyone that knows me well will know that so forgive me if I'll just uh, kind of just delve into this in a bit more detail because you know when we talk about the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem we are not talking about the destruction of a building we're talking about the destruction of a religion and a culture and a people arguably genocide and what we see here in AD 70 is actually the climax of about 60 or 70 years of revolts. You see, the Roman army invaded Pax Romana, which is ironic, um, was enforced with brutal violence. And so when the Romans invaded what we know as Judea, which you, know, you, can, you can describe as a relatively the same place as what you might call Israel now, what happened was they enforced peace through the threat of violence. Now, during the 60 or 70 years from when that started until AD 70, there were rebellions. There were constant rebellions, actually, where people would lead a, re a violent rebellion against Roman rule and it would get put down. But in AD 70, they didn't just put down a rebellion. The, the whole country was in full revolt. Now, one of the most famous historians from this period is a Jew called Josephus. You've probably heard of him. He's responsible for the knowledge that we have about Judaism at this time because he was so prolific in his writings um, as a citizen of the Roman Empire after the collapse of the temple. And he said this. He said, from one end of Galilee to the other, there was an orgy of fire and bloodshed. It was in full revolt. And so when the Romans destroyed the temple, they didn't just destroy a building, they destroyed a symbol, a culture, a religion. But what we see throughout the time when Jesus was alive on the earth and to the point of the destruction of the temple was a decline of Judaism, a decline. And it was a consistent decline because it was under pressure. It was under pressure from the Romans, it was under pressure from what we might call growing secularization. So we're seeing the decline of Judaism during that period of time. But Mark, well, Mark's writing his account right at the end of that time, when the temple's been destroyed. And, um, and with it, all of the traditions and the uh, rituals and the habits of the Jewish people. Now, happily, happily, I was sharing this with Helen just now, happily, Judaism evolved from that point. And a form of Judaism called rabbinic Judaism, and you'll, you'll probably recognize that word rabbinic because Jesus was called a rabbi. There were people who were called teachers, rabbis. And the rabbinic Judaism really was the evolution of Judaism beyond the temple because the temple was, Judaism was a temple-centered religion. It was all about sacrifice in the temple. And the temple was where God resided um, within, their, the, within their story. And so 
it evolved and it didn't just get obliterated by the destruction of the temple, it evolved into what we have today and it has done over the last 2,000 years. Now I'm not going to go into that in detail, but what I want you to know is, is that when Mark was writing his account of Jesus' life, this was what was going on. He lived through 60 years of rebellion and now he's just seen the destruction of his entire religion. Okay, and he doesn't have the benefit that we have of 2,000 years of history, retrospectively, Ooh, excuse me, uh, uh, to, to be able to contextualise what he was seeing. All he knew was that Judaism was, uh, was being obliterated by the Romans. And over the course of the 60 years that led up to that point, he'd seen the decline of it. And he writes this account of Jesus' life. And I just think it's absolutely fascinating. Because what we're going to see is that Mark's account actually describes that decline. And uh, he starts by describing, in his first chapter, the presence of a man called John the Baptist, who was calling people back to their roots. Some scholars think that John the Baptist was part of a monk-like, a monastic community of ascetic um, Jews who lived in uh, the desert. They didn't have very much by way of personal possessions. They lived in um, rudimentary ways, uh, as evidenced by Mark's description of John as he wore clothing made of camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, there are some who would say that's a great diet to have nowadays, actually. Um, you know, let's, let's not eat meat, let's eat locusts um, and wild honey. That sounds good. But back then, that would have been considered to be pretty fringe. All right, pretty fringe. That was a fringe activity, a fringe way of life. He would have been living on the margins of society. And, um, and often when cultures are, or religions are in decline, some members of those cultures and religions, they double down. They double down on the fundamentals of their beliefs in order to try and preserve them. And, and in some senses, that's what the Essenes were doing. They were doubling down. They were doubling down on their beliefs and saying, no, we're not going to be polluted by the increasing secularization of our society. We're going to separate ourselves from them so that we cannot be polluted. So they were like monks, they were like monastics in that regard. Um, but there were other Jewish sects doing the same thing. The Pharisees, we hear a lot about the Pharisees in the accounts of Jesus' life. And Jesus often came into conflict with them. And the reason was, was because they were true. They were also trying to double down on the moral and legal standards that defined what it was to be a Jew. And, and they took it to great lengths. So, so far, actually, that Jesus was really, got really angry with them at times because he saw that they were putting burdens on people that were unnecessary. But nevertheless, what they were trying to do was trying to preserve. And see, when, when a religion or a culture is under pressure of extinction, it tends to fracture, fracture into pieces, fracture into sects and groups. That, that disagree with each other and are infighting with each other as well. And that's what we see as well. Throughout the, the writings of Jesus, really interesting insight into the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Pharisees, the priests. Um, there were so many different types of Jew in that time. Why? Because they were under pressure and all of them were trying to preserve something of their culture and their religion. Into this story of decline, Mark introduces Jesus, this man Jesus of Nazareth, who himself was a Jew. And not just not just a Jew, he was a peasant Jew. He wasn't a member of uh, the elite. He wasn't a member of the aristocracy. He was a peasant Jew. And this is what he says about him. And remember, Mark's writing this after the destruction of the temple. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now that would have been code for, came from the poorest area of the land and was baptized by John in the Jordan, the same John I just described, the, the monk-like person. 
For just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Just to say there's a lot in there you would need to unpack. Okay, so, um, but nevertheless, this is an account of what was happening to Jesus after his baptism. Then, after John was put in prison, because John was arrested, we know this from other accounts, he was arrested, and actually he was murdered in prison, and you can read that story yourself, um, a martyr you might call him. Um, after that happened, Jesus went into Galilee, which is a region of Judea, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Can I just repeat that? Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Full stop. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, remember, Mark is looking back from the position where he's just seen the destruction of his religion, of his way of life, and of his people. He doesn't have the luxury of 2,000 years of history between him and those events like we do. And he says, Jesus went into Galilee in the midst of this decline, in the midst of this destruction, which ultimately ends in the destruction of the temple, proclaiming the good news of God. Mark's just seen the destruction of his nation. He's just seen the destruction of his people, of his tradition, of his religion. And he says, and at that time, there was a man called Jesus who went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. There was good news and hope in the midst of this decline and destruction. There was great news. But what does it even mean when he says the kingdom of God has come near? Well, I'm going to briefly just try and explain a little bit of that. What I think it means is this, is that central to the story of the Jews um, is this covenant or agreement with Yahweh. Was the name, that was the name they used for God. So there's this covenant agreement between the Jews and Yahweh. And this covenant goes right back to their origin, Abraham. This man who had this relationship with God, who he called Yahweh. And Yahweh agreed to have a special relationship with Abraham. Not just with Abraham, but with all of his descendants. And this is recorded in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country. By the, by the way, he was living in what we call Mesopotamia, which is the land between the Euphrates and the Tigris, what we would call modern-day Iraq. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So back then there were no Jews, and there were no Christians. Abraham was actually probably a Sumerian, an ancient Bronze Age culture that emerged in and lived in this area that we call modern-day Iraq. And the story is, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And this is what he says. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Really, really interesting. There's loads in there. But what's really, probably I haven't got time to talk about it in detail, but here's, here's what I want to highlight to you about this promise first thing I want to highlight is it's unconditional 
Abraham didn't have to do anything to, to, for God to fulfill his side of the bargain. Right? So nothing, nothing about this was conditional. It's all unconditional. And the second thing I want to highlight to you is that it was a commitment to Abraham and his ancestors. And what we know is that the Jews trace their origins right back to Abraham. They're all part of... When they say they're a family, they literally are a family. They're all related to Abraham because all peoples are descended from Abraham. That's their story. That's their origin story. And this really formed the foundation stone for them as a people. And this promise, I think, contains what I call three Ps. God's presence, God's protection, and God's provision. God's presence, God's protection, and God's provision. And if you look at the history of the Jews right through the Old Testament, you'll see how those themes just literally weave their way through the whole of the Old Testament. It's, it, their basis was, was that God is love, God loves them unconditionally, and God will provide for them, God will protect them, and God will be present with them. That was the basis of their relationship. So when Jesus comes along and says, guys, although he wouldn't have said it like that, he would have said, verily, verily, I say to you, in spite of the circumstances you find yourselves in, the kingdom of God is here. Yahweh is with you. Yahweh will protect you. Yahweh will provide for you. That was the good news. That was what Jesus was saying to them. And by recording these words at the start of his account, Mark, by the way, who was a Jew who we think was associated with Peter, one of the apostles, um, he appears to be saying this is core to Jesus' ministry. That Jesus came to preach to the Jews that God is present with them, God is providing for them, and God will protect them. And boy, did they need to hear that because they were in a period of decline, increasing secularization. They were in a period of destruction which ended in the destruction of their, of their traditions, their religion, their culture. And Mark's writing this after it's all happened. That phrase, repent and believe the good news, is really important because that's become something for us in Christianity, which it's not. Repent often means kind of, oh, um, I need to fall down on my knees and I need to repent in tears of my behavior. Now, that's not to say it doesn't mean that. But actually what repent means is change your mind. In Greek, uh, uh, it's metanoia which means change your thinking, change the way you think. In other words, have a change of heart. Change the way you think. How many times do we need to change the way we think? You know, oh, I'm so, I'm just, yeah, I fall into self-pity all the time. Does anyone else? Um, yeah, pity myself, pity me, pity me. You know, this is not fair. This hasn't gone right. I'm always the one that has to put up with this. It's so annoying. Why does, it's so unfair. All right, and so often I have to change my thinking. You know, no, no, I'm, I'm being an idiot. I'm being selfish, I'm being self-pitying, snap out of it. So he might have said, instead of repent and believe the good news, he might have said, snap out of it and believe the good news. Because this is the good news of our story. This is our story, guys. This is our story. Now, we've had five people share what the gospel means to them. And for me, for me, the gospel, this is what the gospel, this is the bit of the gospel that really stands out to me. I'm not saying it's the only bit of the gospel, I'm just saying it's the bit that hits me that God is present with me, God protects me, and God provides for me. And ever since I was a child, my reality has been shaped by that belief, that, that I am special, 
Um, I mean, obviously that would have led to some form of arrogance as a young man. Um, I am special and you must treat me as special. No, I am special because I'm loved. I'm loved by God unconditionally. And that has found its expression in my life through my family, friends and the communities in which I've grown up. But I truly believe that I am loved. And I believe that I am loved by God. And therefore, this promise that God is present with me, that God will protect me and God will provide for me, has always been a source of great comfort and strength throughout my whole life. And I have no reason to not believe it. Because it's stunning, the extent to which I've experienced that. Now, I haven't experienced great loss, great trauma in my life. Um, for which I'm grateful. But there have been challenging moments in my life. And whenever there's been challenging moments, that's where I fall back to. That's my fallback position. And I tell you, it's, a, it's really wonderful. It's a brilliant fallback position. But it's also a, a front foot position as well, because actually, with that perspective that God is providing for me, present in my life, and is protecting me, I can get on the front foot in life as well. And I can create, and I can contribute, and I can, I can enjoy all that is happening in my life. So for me, the gospel has always been that God loves me unconditionally, that uh, God is present in my life, God provides for me, and God protects me. And that simple reality has been so important for my mental and emotional health. And, um, and I, you know, for me, this is the gospel. I, I, I want to help other people understand that because for me, there's no better way to live than to live in that reality. Um, and, you know, what's quite interesting, though, as I've grown older, when I was younger, I remember being quite insistent that everyone else had to believe what I believed. Uh, when I went to university, I, I met some Christians that told me that, um, really, I needed to repent of my sins and I needed to become a Christian. And so I went home that Christmas holiday and I told my family, who were all Bible-believing Christians, I said, you're not really Christians. You need to do this, this, and this to be a Christian. And I remember them thinking to me, in fact, they've told me repeatedly since, you know, you were a bit obnoxious back then. Um, and so what I realised is that the more I look at people, the more I realise that actually they're living in that place already. They're living in a place of comfort and security, knowing that God loves them, protects them, and provides for them. And God is present with them. And so actually it's been an eye-opening experience to, to really look for where God is making his presence felt in people's lives. And for me, that's always been a great motivation. Jesus reminded his Jewish contemporaries of this simple reality because they needed to hear it. Their way of life, their traditions, their heritage was under threat. Their society was splintering into factions, often fighting amongst themselves. And of course, Jesus didn't just preach this, he demonstrated it, which led to him being killed by his enemies. But death cannot defeat a man like Jesus. And in his resurrection and ascension, and I use this word carefully, he universalized the promise of Yahweh to the Jews, to everyone. And that is something that Christians sometimes forget. He universalized the promise to the Jews, to everyone. And of course, it wasn't anything new, because if you read the last verse, of, uh, verse three, rather, of Genesis 12, Abraham was to be a blessing to the whole world. You see, it was always about the whole world. It wasn't just about one group of people. And that's really important we recognize that. Now, church, church attendance in the UK has been in decline for a century or longer. And friends, we are at the thin end of the wedge. We are at the thin end of the wedge, okay. But let me tell you this, that does not mean that the gospel of Jesus has been in decline. It isn't, it, it isn't, it just simply isn't. How can that gospel be in decline? 
that you are loved more than you could ever believe. You are unconditionally loved, that God is present in your life, that God is protecting you, God is providing for you. If that doesn't thrill you as a person, um, then, then I, I don't know why. Because there's no, there's no condition on that. You don't have to do anything. You can either believe to enjoy it or not. That's, that's all it is. You don't have to do anything. Because it's grace, it's unconditional. And so as we contemplate the decline of Christianity, as the Times put it, um, I want to just say that the gospel remains the same. And the gospel will continue to evolve. And I rather think it will continue to evolve, a bit like the Jewish faith continued to evolve after the destruction of the temple. We might see the church, as we know it, change, shape and evolve. And, and for us, certainly, being part of uh, a church planting movement, that's kind of been our motivation. We need to change. We need, as a church, as a structure, as a, as a form of Christianity, we need to evolve and change. But the gospel doesn't change. The gospel remains the same. The gospel of Jesus remains the same. So whilst the decline of Christianity in the UK leaves me with mixed emotions, my overriding feeling is one of excitement about the opportunities that this will create for us. Uh, and I don't just mean as a church or as a Christian group of people. I mean as a nation and as a human race. I think it's important that we walk together and recognise our common humanity rather than subdividing and splintering into different groups. Yeah? Because that's just a sign of increasing pressure. So as we walk this journey together, at the start of this new academic year, uh, 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 for what Clara and I feels like a start of a new period in the life of the church, um, actually, we, we want to actually take the opportunity to do something which has been done for 2,000 years, which is to take some bread and take some juice and remember and celebrate, because it is meant to be a celebration, Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And there's, no, there's, nothing, there's nothing you have to do. You don't, there's, there's, it's all unconditional. And this is just a physical act that might lead to a sense of spiritual health and well-being. And that's my prayer for you today, that in taking the bread and the juice, you might experience spiritual and emotional well-being through no, the knowledge and experience of the love of God in your life. So is that all right if we do that together? We don't have to uh, make it too airy-fairy. Um, I think the band are going to come back and play some music. Um, don't feel like you have to put on your holy face as you walk up to communion. You know, am I just the only one that feels like I need to do that? It's like dressing nicely for church, isn't it? You know, it's like, um, as you can see, I don't really pay put me up to that attention, absolutely. <laughs> but we're going we're gonna, to, if you've not done this before, there's nothing magical about it. But there is something very precious about taking some symbols of the body and blood of Christ, the blood and the body of Christ, bread and juice. I don't think it's alcohol, is it? No, it's just juice, yeah. So uh, take it, eat it and drink it whenever you want. That's fine. And, uh, and if you want to do it like with one another, then, then do that as well. Um, but we're going to play some music. And then we're going to, uh, once you've done it, we'll just dissolve the service because we're way over time. Is that all right? Fantastic. Great. Have a good week, guys. <laughs>